Hey there, before we start, just know that this episode contains descriptions of violence in war and a reference to suicide. Thanks for listening. Previously on The Line. The American people understand that this is a different kind of war. And your job was basically manhunting. Yeah, yeah. We captured fucking hundreds upon hundreds of people. We're not here to win. We're here to fucking absolutely decimate you. That's the feeling. It's just a drug. A decorated Navy SEAL was brought into court in shackles today in San Diego. Eddie came over the radio and said, no one touch him, he's all mine. And then all of a sudden, Eddie just starts stabbing the dude. Cheered by supporters who called him a hero, but accused by the military of being a war criminal. It could be skewed and make like everybody look like a bunch of rats. I'm Dan Taberski. This is The Line. Episode 2. A righteous thing. I have stumbled upon a beef. Not beef like cow, rather beef like grudge. Here it is. In 2005, a guy named Mark Danner wrote an article in the New York Times about the mess we were in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Danner is widely credited with being the first to use the term forever war to describe the war on terror. That was in 2005. But a few months ago, I was talking to a naval scholar named John Arquilla. You've used the the term um, forever wars a couple times here. And he has got something to say about that. And I just want to say that I was the first one to use that term in 2004. John says he coined Forever War in an article a year earlier than the New York Times guy. But the New York Times guy, he gets all the credit. Anytime someone says, hey, who's the guy who started calling it the Forever War? There's the New York Times guy and not John. And it still gripes me. But the real headline here, it's not the grudge. The interesting thing about that, John, is that you were calling it a forever war in 2004. Right. It's 2020. Yeah. Well, it turned out to be right. The war on terror is the longest war the United States has ever fought. A forever war. But from the very beginning, it was also a new kind of warfare, leaning on special operators more and conventional troops less, and a limited supply of Navy SEALs to fight it. In 2005, with the scope of the fighting expanding still and the SEAL teams already straining under the pressure, the Pentagon set a target for the SEAL teams. They said, we want 500 new Navy SEALs in five years, which sounds reasonable, until you realize they'd been averaging only five new SEALs a year. It is arguably the most difficult military screening process in the world. Almost no one makes it through. So the SEALs brought in somebody to help. The job? Find those people who can make it through. And I'm like, Navy SEAL applicant screening? I mean, if you're in the applicant screening world, what cooler thing could you possibly do? <laughs> Find a man that looks at you the way Dr. Josh Cotton looks at screening algorithms. <laughs> I, I love screening algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't? The gig put Dr. Kid in a candy store right in the middle of an amazing opportunity. Dr. Cotton is an industrial organizational psychologist, and the SEALs were giving him the chance to crack open the brains of the most exceptional and unusual people in any job anywhere, and to see what that special something is that makes them able to do it. What he learned over the next few years, it might be summed up in one interaction he had with a SEAL. This guy had you know, sleeve tattoos, tattoos all over. And apparently he was a smoker because he had a gruff voice like this. This is how he talked. 
And just at some point in the conversation, he said, you know, if I didn't join the SEALs, I probably would be in a biker gang somewhere. And I was just like, whoa, who are these people? I had the ADHD, you know, crazy with the hype. My parents would give me Ritalin. This is Brett, SEAL Team 10. When you're a child like that, it feels like you have a rocket strapped to your back all the time. Teachers don't like kids with rockets strapped to their back. Parents don't like kids with rockets strapped to their back. The Navy, they like those kids. You could let that rocket just roar. The early years of the SEALs we met ranged from super normal. I was the kid with the BB gun in the backyard with like mud all over his body, like hanging out in the in the bushes with his mom yelling at him. To the strangely exceptional. One SEAL I spoke with would go diving as a kid in the flooded quarries of southern Indiana, and he used an aqualung that he built himself. Well, I, I, I took a fire extinguisher bottle and burnished it out and pressure tested it and then put a valve on it and a regulator, and I was, I was good to go. Homemade scuba gear, no big deal. I was out looking for an adventure all the time. Don served on SEAL Team 6. There was no better feeling adrenaline-wise to being chased down the road by the police because they knew I was too young to have a motorcycle. In fact, team guys pretty much seem like a parade of motorcycle accidents. This is Bob, Team 1. And then I got hit by a car on my motorcycle. Tom, Team 2. I hit a car and my motorcycle hard enough to total the car. In all seriousness, someone needs to do a study on this. Uh, I had gotten in a motorcycle accident and knew that I needed to get back to, shall we say, growth. This last guy is Walt Disney. He gave me permission to use his full name because you kind of can't not talk about the fact that someone's actual name really is Walt Disney. Walt served on Team 3 on and off for 12 years and then did a total 180 and became a psychotherapist. He says that he's since noticed a common theme in the early lives of SEALs. There is something called the Adverse Childhood Experience. It's also known as ACEs. It's a quiz developed with the CDC in the 90s. It's comprised of just 10 yes or no questions about childhood trauma. Questions like, Did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, had no one to take you to the doctor? The more yeses a person answers on the quiz, the more at risk they are to develop drug abuse problems, heart disease, obesity. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you? But Walt says that in his work, he has found that more yeses than the average person is also very common among SEALs. The ACE scores for them are much higher than the general populace. They just are. Wow. It's significant. It's significant. I grew up with that kind of loneliness and um, lack of um, acknowledgement my entire life. I mean, my entire life. This is Rob. He served on Team 6. Rob noticed the same pattern Walt Disney did in himself and in other team guys. Divorced parents... Or, um, you know, single mom, you know, wanting to prove something to themselves. Rob also worked as a SEAL recruiter, and he actually sought out that rough childhood in prospective SEALs. When I look for candidates, I look for that problem background that, that ties into what we want from them. Not a problem background with drugs and alcohol, but a problem background where they want to they do better than they're doing now. They want to change their status in life, and they want to be a part of something as a group. 
It is not unanimously true, of course, but it's a pattern, and it becomes clear pretty quickly. I'm a poor kid from the ghetto. This is Dan, Team 7. I'm the only guy from my immediate family to graduate high school, much less college. My mom was married nine times. It seems to be the commonality amongst all of us. Gary, Team 5. My childhood was uh, rough. Um, you know, I, I came from an abusive, broken household, and I wanted to be part of a community that had that brotherhood. It is a gap that the teams seem custom-designed to fill. And for Dr. Cotton, it makes total sense. I wouldn't call it exploitation as much as I would call it utilization, I guess. Here's somebody who's been through something difficult. They overcame it. And now they have something special. It's part of what engenders such fierce loyalty to the teams, what they call the brotherhood. There's guys coming through this pipeline that are 18 years old, 19 years old. This is Ben, Team 5. Um, and you're learning all this stuff from guys that are very experienced, very knowledgeable. I've done a lot of incredibly impressive things. Like, he raised you, he trained you and taught you. Um, in a way that nobody else could. Being raised by the teams, brought up by the teams. You hear that language constantly among SEALs. It's a loyalty that's good for any organization, but it's critical for this one. Because if you find yourself in a place you've never heard of, far away from the 10 hut of military authority, with 16 other people working together to achieve something that would be impossible for any one person alone, it's the one unanimous thing I heard from the SEALs I spoke with. That loyalty, that trust that the guy next to you has your back, it's the thing that holds it all together. Here's another thing about SEALs that Dr. Cotton found in his work. It's a quality not unusual so much in concept, but rather in the extreme level at which SEALs commit to it. Tenacity. Tenacity is just biting on and not letting go. To be clear, he's not talking about, like, stick to or gumption. Dr. Cotton is talking about guys who do not know how to stop at a severe level. The idea gelled when he was talking to the medical doctors who treat the SEALs at Coronado. I so said, let me ask you a question. Do you ever see people come in here with injuries that you say to yourself, I can't believe this guy waited so long to come in? And his answer was, all the time the type of guy who can, can somehow put their pain aside, put aside the signals that their body and their mind are sending them that tell them, this is not right. This is an unpleasant experience. This is the wrong activity. I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. I need to go. Somehow they know how to turn those voices off. Get down in the mud and start crawling! Get in the mud! They put this ability to the test at BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. BUDS happens at the Naval Special Warfare Center at Coronado, California. 24 weeks, built not to find the strongest or the fastest or the smartest to be SEALs. BUDS is, honestly feels like it's just survival. It's built to see who can take the most punishment. Brett, Team 10. You're just constantly cold. You're always wet. And it's painful. And 
and everything sucks and now you're hungry and tired and there's a person yelling at you and it, it's it's a very very stressful time you better be fast if you're told to go hit the surf you will sprint to the surf you get completely wet you'll get back sprinting and believe me if you get caught not sprinting if you get caught screwing off we'll find you and we will make you pay Six months of running in the soft sand and miles of open ocean swimming, endless calisthenics, sleep deprivation. They do a lot of boat carrying and log carrying. Your hands on the log. Running with a log, group sit-ups with a log. It's very log-centric. And it's all set up to make you say to hell with this and walk away. They do this thing called, it's called the Goon Squad. This is Rob from Team Six again. The Goon Squad is where they beat the dog shit out of you. Oh, okay. Run in and out of the surf, roll around, a sugar cookie, you make you do push-ups, eight-count bodybuilders. Wait, wait, stop, stop. What's a sugar cookie? A sugar cookie is when they make you get completely wet, <laughs> you come into the dry sand, and they make you roll over like a sugar cookie. So you got sand, the sand's got to cover your entire body and your head. And if anything's not covered with sand, because the ocean's 55 degrees, you run back out to the ocean, you jump in, come back, and you sugar cookie again. That's a sugar cookie. But the truly evil genius thing here is that everything about Buds is basically impossible to do except for the quitting part. They make quitting irresistibly easy because right there, right in the middle of the compound. There's a bell, a big bell. Don from Team Six again. And if anybody wants to quit, they take their helmet off. They lay it on the ground under the bell. They ring the bell three times. Then they're gone. So you just see a long line of green helmets. Every day you go out, there's more green helmets. And pretty much everyone who tries Buds rings that bell. So we started out with 298 original dudes. This is Nate, Team 2. And then we graduated with seven original guys. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How long did it take for the first guy to ring the bell? Oh, a couple minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they hit you hard right in the beginning, yeah. All that time and effort and money just to find the handful of guys who would not stop, and often to their extreme detriment. My dad was there to see me finish Hell Week. Gary from Team 5 again. And I walked right past him and he didn't even recognize me. Um, I had elephantitis of my legs and my feet. Everything was swollen up. Oh, my gosh. Just from edema. Just overuse. And there was no sense of, like, I should stop? Like, what you you were doing to your body? You can't can't fail. There's no no option for failing. I'm not going to ring that bell. There's nothing you can do to me. And, uh, I mean, I've seen guys where we do these long underwater swims where they know that if they don't cross the pool on their own that they're going to fail the evolution and they'll take themselves to the point where they pass out underwater. They have what they call a shallow water blackout. You saw somebody do that? I was an instructor at the end and once or twice a class someone would black out because they weren't willing to surface. Is that a bad thing or a good thing to have that quality? No, it's dangerous. I would say it's dangerous. For the individual, perhaps. But for a team guy, it is necessary. Because later in their jobs, they have to be in crazy Mm -hmm. situations where maybe they ran out of food and 
Sorry, but the job's not over for two more days. Maybe they broke a bone. And guess what? We cannot send in a helicopter. They're not allowed to stop. <laughs> because stopping equals death. It death for you, maybe death for the team, death for the mission. In the course of his research, Dr. Cotton stumbled upon something else. You know, and when I first got exposed to that data, like, I had to rationalize it myself. I'm like, huh. uh-oh. Evidence of a trait among SEALs that seemed off. Because so far, hey, success indicators sound great. Resilience, tenacity, drive. I'm like, yeah, everybody wants that. And now there's this one. It is something that exists in Rob from Team 6. Remember him? He's the sugar cookie. I mean, this might sound bad, but I consider myself a person that has low empathy. Empathy? He doesn't have it. Or at least he has a lot less than most. And I'm not saying that not every team guy is like me, but a majority of team guys don't have the empathy that you would think they'd have. I think on the scale of, say, 1 to 80, 80 being a nurse and uh, 0 being a, you know, a sociopath, <laughs> I think we're close to, like, we're like 30. Frankly, I think he's a sociopath for creating a scale from 1 to 80. Happened to 100. But low empathy is the kind of quality that doesn't quite sound like a quality quality, does it? Yeah. I think we're, we're not on the side of compassion that would help people. We're more on the side of that we could kill you without having an emotional response to it. This is Dr. Cotton again. Okay, raise your hand if uh, you don't care if the guy next to you got punched in the face. That's not something that we would say, oh, great, you, we want to hire you. Yeah. Like, that's disturbing, actually, that it would be one of the success indicators. I realized that if you're going to be putting yourself in a position where you're going to have to intentionally harm another human being, you cannot be the type of person who gets drawn in by other people's pain and feel it deeply and intensely and choose this profession or survive in the profession. To me, all this makes for a pretty tricky balancing act. When the assets that make you great can so easily turn into liabilities, like being able to act without an emotional response, how that might set you up for just having to deal with it down the road, or extreme loyalty to the teams. It makes the teamwork unparalleled, but it also makes turning on someone in that team when you think they've crossed the line come at such a high cost. And the ability to never quit, a total lack of limits, that on the flip side, it might make it hard to stop someone, or for them to stop themselves from going too far. Eddie Gallagher lives in Florida now with his wife Andrea, his kids, and his French bulldogs like being attacked by three loaves of bread. His house is a new build a couple of years ago, but it's made to look old and traditional, complete with porch swing and American flag bunting that swagged off the railing like it's the 4th of July, even though it's March. Yeah, I totally get that. You ready? <clears throat> no, I think it's past. This morning as we speak, he is wearing a t-shirt, tropical print swim trunks, and flip-flops. He's practically breezy. Until you notice his left wrist and the rubber bracelet that says, kill bad dudes. How did you know it was what you wanted? I knew that their job was to go to war and be war fighters, and that's what I wanted to be. Um, 
And I mean, I grew up watching all the war movies. Mm. Uh, Which ones do you remember? Oh, like, you know, Commando, Predator, Navy (laughs) Seals. Predator has aliens in it. Yeah. But it's still like, you know, a bunch of badasses running around in the in the jungle with guns. As a little kid, you're like, that's awesome. And, you know, you would watch those movies and then we'd go out and play war. Yeah. You know, in the neighborhood. Um, Platoon was a big one I'd watch all the time. That's interesting because the message of Platoon is not that this is going to be an easy thing. Yeah. A and morally I think, easy thing. Yeah. I remember a saying in that movie, like, you know, they were saying, you know, being a grunt because a grunt can take it. You know, you're at the bottom of the barrel and stuck in the mud and you can take anything. And I was like, you know what? I That's kind of what I want to do. Eddie's dad was a lieutenant colonel. So Eddie was an army brat. He and his brother Sean being lugged around the world every couple of years to landing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. To hear Eddie talk, he was a wild child. Smoking weed, getting into fist fights. His parents finally just shipped him off to boarding school. But he gets kicked out for fighting. One Sunday in July of 99, he's involved in another fist fight. This time, the cops show up. 48 hours after that, he's appearing before a judge. And 24 hours after that? There is a job where you earn more than just a paycheck. You learn respect, honor, pride. You'll get a world-class education, work with state-of-the-art technology, and live the kind of life most people only dream about. Eddie Gallagher enlists. All that and more are waiting for you in the United States Navy. I thought I was like, there's a war somewhere going on, and I'll get sent there to go fight. Too young to drink, but not too young to fight. By 2004, Eddie finagles his way into buds and 24 weeks of pain. The thing is, like, I'm not going to die. Like, and I was willing to die. I'm like, I'll die before I quit. And, but you know, like... You're being literal. What's that? That you would die before quitting. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That was my mindset. I'm like, if I do die during this training, at least I didn't quit. You know, it's a like beautiful thing. It brings people to a point to where your body is telling you like, I can't go on, but your mind snaps and is like, no, we're going to keep going. And once you cross that threshold, You're not going to stop. And from the pace he's kept since then, it seemed like he never would. How many times did you deploy? Uh, Eight altogether. Um, How many combat deployments? Seven, I think. Six or seven. You can't. They all blend together. Um, You're going like on a speeding train, (laughs) like 120 miles an hour. You're not thinking, you know, it was just like, okay, we're going again. I'm going again. And I wanted to. I wanted to keep deploying because my brothers are out there. And I want to be with them. Navy SEALs often spend up to 300 days a year away from home. And a vast majority of SEAL marriages end in divorce. Who are you more loyal to, your family or the SEALs? Uh, I think that's a hard thing to juggle. Um, no matter how much you love your family, the, the teams are going to come first. It's a hard thing to say. But that's just the reality of it. Like, this is my my job, and it it consumes me. You remember the first time that killing became real instead of something that you were training for? Yeah. I mean, the first time 
getting in like a firefight and actually shooting somebody. That's uh, it was exciting. And you can, I think you can tell in those scenarios, like who is meant for the job and who isn't. You can just see in people's faces, whether they're bothered by death or not. And what did you find out about yourself? Uh, I was fine with it. Team guys often refer to their first kill as losing their virginity. Eddie lost his during his first Iraq deployment when they were zeroing in on a group of suspected terrorists. Um, We had a source that was talking to them and they were like, yeah, these guys want weapons to go kill Americans. So Eddie says he hatches a plan. I'm like, okay, tell them, you know, that you have weapons buried in this area. And we actually went out there and buried weapons, uh, unloaded, of course, and waited for them. Sure enough, these guys came and dug up the weapons. And uh, we waited until each of them had the weapons in their hand, and then we mowed them down. Whoa. Yeah, and that was, it was awesome. That kill bad dudes bracelet Eddie's wearing, it isn't meant to be cheeky. Killing is his talent. It's his life's work probably one of the better like old school raid tactics you know we use but it was it was cool when eddie gallagher speaks of killing in war he is matter of fact he is not interested in making you feel better about it and he looks you right in the eyes we're killing bad guys we're taking evil off this earth and that's a righteous thing you know Did you believe in evil before you went there? I don't think you knew what evil was. Do you believe it now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's I've seen straight evil. I mean, only an evil person could do stuff like that. Like? Like mowing down innocent civilians, women and kids. Putting kids' heads on spikes. um, Tying... Uh, S vests to kids and What's sending them uh, like a suicide vest and putting them on kids or women, sending them like go blow yourself up to kill these Americans. And I don't think America has any like they they don't want to hear it because it is evil and it's it's hard to hear that stuff goes on like that. It is hard to hear. Yeah. You know, the funny thing was when Eddie came home in August, it was our best reintegration ever. This is Eddie's wife, Andrea. When Eddie came home after his six months in Mosul in 2017, she says things seem normal, better than normal. Reintegration is the process that takes place after you have a guy that's deployed for six, seven months. You can count on six, seven months of probably reintegration as a family. Wow. And it was like seamless. The deployment overall was successful and amazing. I mean, he crushed it. I was crushing it on the home front. I felt like we had finally hit our stride. Until she starts to run into the other wives of the SEALs in Alpha Platoon. She didn't know it at the time, but that text thread among the platoon, the one without Eddie on it, it was already humming. I sensed a lot of animosity between the wives, and I was like, 
I just felt like an iciness. I mean, I'm pretty perceptive. Um, and I was like, okay, this is weird. These are people that I had had relationships with. These are people that my daughter babysat for them. And all of a sudden, cold shoulder. And I was like, okay. And rumors began circulating about the things that Eddie did on deployment. But according to Andrea, most of it was stupid stuff, like strangely petty accusations. Like, you stole my power bar. You stole a Red Bull. You didn't pay me back for a haircut. You used my magazine, which is a gun magazine, and it broke. Like, who complains about a power bar? You don't complain about a Red Bull. These, these were very odd behaviors. But it's also mixed, she says, with more pointed complaints about the way Eddie pushed the platoon in Mosul. It was, this guy is too aggressive. Like, no. oh, you're mean. You called us pussies. Um, you're too aggressive. You could have got us killed. Eddie paints those cries of being too aggressive in combat and putting the platoon in danger as a difference in opinion over tactics. But he's the chief. He is the one with years of combat experience. As one Iraqi general who worked with Eddie in Mosul said, he was an asshole to them, like I'm an asshole to my men. And in war... When you are responsible for a platoon, maybe being an asshole is a good thing. Are you an asshole? Uh, no, I don't think I don't think I'm an asshole. I'm like a no bullshit type of person. Like, I'm not going to listen to your whines or complaints. Like, these are the orders given. Execute them. Yeah, you're an they, asshole. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, that's how I mean. Yeah, I guess I am an asshole. Then it's as as a. No, I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm an asshole. There's no freaking way. I'm not an asshole. There's a thousand ways to skin a cat. I'm like, I'm skinning it my way because I'm the platoon chief right now. When you're a platoon chief, you can skin it your way. But until that time, do your fucking job. But the text threads among some of the SEALs in his platoon get longer and more resolute about taking their allegations against Eddie as high as they can go. We did not truly hear the word or the insinuation of war crimes until February or March. And NCIS picks up the case in April of 2018, where they start recording that testimony we heard from some of the SEALs in the platoon. You know, this guy was 13, 14. All of a sudden, maybe just start stabbing the dude. Is that possible? No, I saw him with a knife, and that's without a doubt. Eddie's version of that day, when that ISIS prisoner was brought in on the hood of that Humvee, is very different, even in just how he saw that prisoner. And everyone, you know, portrayal, oh, he's this young, like, he was, I think, 16 or 17. I mean, that's a fighting age male. How old were you when you enlisted? I was 19. Okay. Not yeah. that far off. No, and plus, it's the enemy. Like, I knew this guy was just trying to kill us, like... There's no compassion there for him. No feelings about him. I'm like, I'm not like hoping he's going to make it. I mean, the only reason I would want him to make it is to get information out of him. And that's it. Like if he died, I was like, okay, whatever. It's another dead body on the street. So what happened after that freeze frame of Gallagher kneeling over that ISIS fighter right before the helmet cam video shut off? Gallagher, who was trained as a medic, says that what he did then was treat him. I did the sweep for any arterial bleeds and then went right to the airway. They think the prisoner might have blast lung, basically that his lungs had been injured by the airstrike that he escaped a few hours before. Um, did an invasive procedure called a crike, which is, you know, sticking a tube in his neck so he can have a patent airway. 
and that was pretty much the last procedure I did on him. Um, the other two medics had come up at that point and started assisting. Then Gallagher says he steps away to clear the crowd of Iraqis taking pictures. And when I walked back, he was pretty much dead. Um, and that was it. That was sort of like, okay, this guy's dead. Um, you didn't stab this kid. Yeah, I did not stab this you didn't stab, terrorist. You, you no. didn't stab him. No, not at all. And that's... Yeah, the complete, like, lie that was told. As much as he might have wanted to kill that fighter, Gallagher says he didn't. And that the accusations of murder, the shooting of civilians on the street, all of it lies, made up by his platoon. He even says the reason for that freeze frame, the reason that there's no video after it that he says would show him treating and not killing the ISIS fighter, is because the men from his platoon deleted it so they could pin the death on him. And the metadata that was pulled from that recorder, it does at least support that possibility. You can see it in the file names. The video with the freeze frame, it's named file 0296. But the next video on the drive is 0301. There's a gap, four files missing. We also found that the shared platoon laptop was not password protected, which A, seems crazy for a covert action team, but B, it means that anyone with access to that laptop could have deleted those files, which is basically everyone in the platoon, including Eddie. But those files do seem to have been there. And then they weren't. And Gallagher says he is convinced it was a setup. When you're putting these pieces together of like just how diabolical some of these guys were on coming up with their story. But all he and Andrea could do was watch as the allegations gathered steam. It was by June 20th of 2018 that our home was being raided. It was like a scene out of like Narcos or something. NCIS investigators seize his footlocker. They seize a pistol. They seize a rifle, a suppressor. They seize night vision goggles. They also raid his storage cage at the teams, which had a live grenade in it. They had to evacuate the whole building before they removed it. They seize many, many knives, including a custom-made hunting knife. They seize a custom-made hatchet. They seize his phone. And on it, they find a text Gallagher had sent to a superior just before he deployed, saying, quote, We just want to kill as many people as possible. They find a text Gallagher sent to the bladesmith who made him those custom-made blades right before he deployed, saying, quote, I will try and dig that knife or hatchet on someone's skull. When you hear some of that stuff coming back to you, like the text, and you add it all up, do you... Was there a moment where you thought to yourself, dude, I'm intense. Like, I talk about killing a lot. <laughs> I'm in it, like, I've been just, I'm an intense individual. I think you could take any special operator's phone or go through his house and you could easily paint him as, look at this, psychopath. Yeah, oh, look, he has knives in his house. He has a gun in his house. He enjoys going to war. He enjoys killing. We're trained to be like this. That does not make me a psycho. That's my job. Truth be told, a lot of the evidence against Eddie has a similar feel. It's incriminating, but just vaguely. And that on the battlefield and in context might sound less sinister. Unfortunately for Eddie, some of the evidence they found in that sweep was a lot more specific. In particular, those trophy photos on Eddie's phone including one of himself, holding his knife in one hand and the corpse in the other. 
But they didn't just find the photos. They found one of them attached to a text that he had sent to a friend, along with a sentence spelling out in words what the photo implies. He wrote, good story behind this one. Got him with my hunting knife. Next time on The Line. Fuck. United States versus Gallagher. Fuck. And I'm like, well, what can we do? And Eddie was just like, what do you mean, what can we do? I'm in fucking prison. They wanted us just to remain silent and let it play out and trust the system, trust the process. And I was like, we're done with that. Well, I want everyone to know that, number one, my husband is innocent. If, in fact, he did stab that detainee, that is dead wrong. There's thousands of war heroes out there right now. We can't give them free reign to go stab people in the neck. War is ugly, and it's gray. They're told to go uh, kill a bunch of these guys, and then they're told how you can kill them. And that's not always very clear. We have rules, but those rules can be bent. The Line is an Apple original podcast produced by Jigsaw Productions. Our producer is Lizzie Jacobs. Investigative producer Diane Hodson. Jody Avergan is our editor. Maria Luisa Tucker and David Iverson are our associate producers. Emily Van Blarkham is our production assistant. And Natsumi Ajisaka did our fact-checking. Rick Kwan is our engineer. And our original music is from Mark Orton and John Hancock, with additional music from Jeff Baxter and Eric Phillips. The Line is executive produced and written by me, Dan Taberski. For Jigsaw Productions, executive producers are Brad E. Bear, Stacey Offman, Richard Perillo, Joey Mara, and Alex Gibney. The supervising producer is Whitney Johnson. Our consulting producers are Annie Allen and Jeff Zimbalist. The team also includes Andrew Hafner, Jade Lewis, and Eric Mitten. Our interns are Olivia Butler, Zara Khan, Sarah Feynman, and Lily Levy Epstein. Legal services provided by J. Ward Brown and Ballard's Bar. Thanks to the folks at Final Final V2. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And a special thank you to the special operators who shared their stories for this project. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please know that there's help. If you're in the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is open 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. For information in other countries, please search for your local crisis line.